The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Do you do anything in the bathroom? I was putting some music on and then I was giving my phone. So you put, what did you put on? Music on. Whose was that? It was my music. Oh, it was? Yeah. Did you ask anybody if you could put it on? I asked myself. <laughs> Did you see how it looked? Yeah. So whose lipstick is that? Uh, mine. You bought it? Yeah. Where'd you buy that? My lipstick? Yeah. I buy it from Homie Depot. <laughs> <laughs> that is a chat GPT-designed cute little kid. Come on, that's too much. <laughs> that is awesome. That is the kind of answers you get out of little kid's that are so revealing about the human mind often who uh, did you ask i asked myself <laughs> yeah I, should hey, i do this or I not i will choose free will huh should i do this or not i thought to myself and i decided yes <laughs> you bought it where'd you buy it uh, home depot <laughs> quick what's a store what's a store home depot home depot daddy <laughs> you could ask a little i remember having conversations like this again i look at you know why did you eat that when you know you're not supposed to because it looked delicious is the answer you know what and that's right. that's the reason <laughs> yeah well i have no counter son um, god that reminds me of my kids when they're that age oh i got a tear going uh wow that's that's sweet what a nice little tape although clearly that child is uh is uh, a thief destined for prison a budding criminal, yes. A convict in waiting, yes. Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Coming up, the true meaning of North Richmond, North of Richmond, which I thought was the whole point of the song right off the bat, but it's now just being revealed. So stay tuned. Is it now? <laughs> Should I be cynical about this or, or hopeful or what? Uh, I don't know. I'll just wait, uh, yeah. I guess. <laughs> Also, I would like to at some point today, and it's funny, sometimes Fridays seem like the day to do this sort of thing. Uh, I came across a couple of perspectives about the Civil War, believe it or not, 
that have definitely made me refile, shuffle, uh, you know, toss up in the air and rearrange my attitudes about it. Wow, you're in, rooting for the Rebs now? In some significant ways. I will not dignify that stupidity with a response. <laughs> <laughs> I am struck by how much attention is being paid to the death spiral or, uh, you know, the coming downfall of China and, uh, for instance, San Francisco or, you know, Seattle, Portland, whatever. These these uh, blue cities and or commies that have sowed the scenes of their own destruction. And it's become so obvious that even people on the left are talking about it. But what institution could be more important in the United States than our government schools, which educate the vast majority of kids, or at least a a significant majority? I'd actually like to see those numbers come to think of it. But And I believe, and I mean this to my bones, I'm not trying to be exciting here. I believe American government schools are in something like a death spiral. It'll take a while because they're such an institution, but all the signs are there. I mean, it's bad. For instance... The WAPO, a liberal newspaper, is reporting that teacher shortages have gotten worse in virtually every American state. They looked at 37 states for some reason. I don't know. Maybe they got winded and didn't have time for the last 13. But they found that teacher vacancies grew in the last, is it, year and a half? Um, Yes. Oh, good Lord. This is from the the 2021-2022 school year. A single year. Teacher vacancies grew by 35%. That's more than a third for those of you who went to a government school and flunked fractions. (laughs) That's extraordinary. It's shocking. And they go into uh, examples in Arizona, which are mind-boggling. Um... Teacher vacancies rose from 15 per 10,000 students to 26. West Virginia was missing 1,500 teachers last year. That's a 50% increase from the previous year. Uh, some states obviously worse than others, but if you average them out, it's down 37%. I have a quick and, thought. Yes, please. Just because of it popped into my head. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm always blaming for this. I know what a lot of big government people always blame. It's got to be salaries. You just need to pay them more. That's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. No, no, I don't think it is. In fact, surveys have shown that. But do uh, do people with are there more people with children that decide to be teachers than people who are single? I don't know that. I have no idea. I just wonder if the lack of getting married and having kids is is caused fewer people to choose that vocation. I have no idea. That's certainly an interesting premise to investigate. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, the Rand Corporation did a big survey of teachers trying to figure out what was going on. And I had to scroll down to like paragraph 15, uh, of this story to get to the why wouldn't it, that was immediately what I wanted to know. And the Rand Corporation cited, and I'm guessing this is in order. I haven't clicked on the actual survey cause it's slightly voluminous, but anyway, um, they cited stress number one, then low pay and long hours. I think that is an incredibly inadequate phrase for an incredibly important topic. Stress of being told to teach, being ordered to teach 
extremely controversial, radical theories of sex and sexuality, for instance. The stress of having out-of-control classrooms and having progressive policies of discipline remove their authority from the classroom. And, and there are several other things, but I think those are two very important factors. And that, and I'm not going on my own guesswork. We've asked teachers repeatedly, if you have left or you're planning to leave the profession, why? And they have written eloquently and movingly about it. And, and I think that quote-unquote stress, which if this was an algebra class, that would be a very, very, very long set of factors inside the parentheses, if you know what I'm saying. And then they say low pay. It's low pay given the stress. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I wonder if you went back 50 years, or maybe you wouldn't even have to go back that far, how many teachers would say their job is extremely stressful? I'm guessing not that many. That's the key question, I'm isn't thinking it? your average third grade teacher would say, no, it's hard. Lots of jobs are hard. There's a lot of work, but stressful. I don't know if it's more stressful than anything else. As opposed to now, it's the... Of course it's stressful now. You can end up on the wrong side of history <laughs> as it's currently developing so easily as a teacher. And then the whole, oh, yeah. you're not allowed to discipline anybody. And if you do the government paperwork you have to fill out, oh, my God. So if on the one hand you have a uh, an occupation, a, a, a life's mission, really, because I know we both cherish good teachers. I mean, they're heroes. I love good teachers. I thank God for your existence on earth, you good teachers, including those who taught me. Um, if you are in a, uh, a, a job, a, a career, a, a life's mission that is joyful, rewarding, magical, difficult, always challenging, but you see young minds and hearts blossom, well, the fact that the pay ain't like super great it's just not going to be that big a deal as opposed to you're in a chaotic hellhole being ordered to teach radical ideologies you find abhorrent. Yes, the pay's too low for that. And long hours, I would say that's roughly the same you know equation I'm talking about. Yeah, well, if you ruin the vocation part of it and turn it into just a job where you have to determine is the juice worth the squeeze, yeah, you're going to end up in a different situation. So a couple other notes from the world of education. This is from the uh, the Free Beacon, which is a terrific website. Uh, and, and for a avowedly conservative website, they're pretty damn good journalists and pretty responsible. I'm uh, growing as a fan. Um, Portland Public Schools. Jack mentioned this briefly the other day. I thought it was worth following up. They're workshopping new equitable grading practices that bar teachers from giving a zero just because you didn't turn in the assignment at all. And you can't give a zero if they cheated. The district's initiatives aim to address racial disparities and inequities in grading and instruction, a journey that the district began, this is, these are quotes now, during the pandemic. Grading for equity eliminates zeros as a grade, even when cheating or right. It also calls for no penalties for late work, no grades for both homework and non-academic factors, such as participation, attendance, effort, attitude, and behavior. So if you punch the teacher in the face... And turn in no work. They cannot downgrade you for that. And that, friends, is going to lift up our minority children. It would be terrifying to be that delusional. I mean, you have to be, you're like one step away from hearing voices and imagining there are demons chasing you. 
to be so divorced from the way human beings really work that you would advocate those policies. You people scare me. Well, they won the day for now. And they got a brief edge, but I think more and more folks are becoming aware of what's going on in the schools and are getting more and more militant about it. And, and good for y'all. We're certainly uh, on your side. A couple more very quick notes. There was an arrest in the L.A. area. Um uh, Southern California districts, districts including San Diego, Antelope Valley, uh, Glendale, Los Angeles. There is a fight broke out at an elementary school in L.A. because the parents were enraged that they were teaching the tiny little kids, hey, Johnny, do you like to play with dolls? You're probably a little girl. And the rest of the radical gender theory. To my point that people are starting to wake up and show up. Is there one more? Ah, then on the other hand, And this is just interesting kind of in a weird way. Tennessee, Michigan, and Carolina are among at least 16 states that have tried in recent years to use reading tests and laws requiring students to repeat third grade to improve literacy. They're saying, look, if you get out of third grade and you can't read, you need to do third grade again. Because if you can't read, you can't learn math. You can't learn science. You can't learn social Mm. studies. You can't learn anything. You've got to be able to read. And what's really interesting about this is the the resistance. People saying, well, I don't know, it disproportionately affects kids of color and and it's tough for the kids and the families might be discouraged and all. I I think the divide is between can you recognize reality or can't you? Yeah, that I I I became aware of that a couple of years ago with a variety of things that were going on uh, at schools with my kids and other kids i know that being held back was no longer a thing i didn't know that uh that they'd changed that since i was a kid how are you doing a kid any favors by social promotion keep them with their friends oh my god i I have examples of kids who that so they, they end up in the next grade they're not ready for it for a variety of reasons covid messed things up and all kinds of things and uh they're miserable they're because they'd have no idea what's going on and you're not helping anybody Right, or at least an intensive, months-long summer reading get-up-to-speed program that everybody's heard of and everybody knows about because it's so important. Interestingly, in Tennessee, um, whose whose hearts and brains were in absolutely the right place, I think, in passing this, uh, roughly 60% of Tennessee third graders who tested in the spring failed to meet the necessary reading threshold. More than half, friends. Wow. So is the answer... We need to launch an intensive and year-long study of why our kids can't read. Or is the answer, no, just pass them. Just put them in fourth grade. Well, in many quarters, the answer is the latter. Just or pass them. This is too crazy. Do we think human beings have changed so much in recent years that they're incapable of reading the way we all did before? I mean, that's crazy, obviously. I know it is. It's uh, the brutal, brutal racism and, and cruelty of low expectations. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, text line 415-295-KFTC. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. 
But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Saw this headline yesterday. I've got seven kids and work out every day. Stop making excuses for yourself. And I thought, uh, I'm going to gather up a bunch of people. We'll drive to wherever (laughs) this person is, and we're going to slap them silly for having said that. Yeah, I was going to say, what, you don't have enough hatred in your life and just want to bring as much as possible uh, (laughs) down upon you? All right, well, good start. (laughs) Uh, The, oh, I wanted to come back with, do we have the song? You know the song. You know the the hottest song in the country. There you go. Rich man, the rich man, Lord knows it all just want to have. So he continues to do interviews, this Oliver Anthony or Anthony Oliver, I don't know which, nobody does. Oliver Anthony. Um, so he did an interview, and here's, uh, here, I haven't read it, it actually hasn't come out yet, but the uh, summary of it from one writer was, so it turns out the singer wasn't in fact demanding industrial policy, tariffs, and new federal government efforts for the left behind. His message was, work to solve your own problems and don't rely on Washington, D.C., which is the point I was making after I heard it the first time that it's a f- you never hear that crowd represented. I don't have much, but I ain't asking for more. Just stop giving stuff to people who don't try. <laughs> that crowd right. is completely unrepresented in the national discourse. Well, and a gentleman pointing out, if you're looking to D.C. to be your savior, you're a fool. Or worse, amen to that. But it just it just bothers me. It's always about um, uh, the idea is you know if some people have more, some people have less. We need some sort of government program to make sure the people who have less get more, something like that. And Republicans and Democrats do it, but very few people speak for the crowds. That's like I'm I'm okay. I realize this is what I got. Maybe I'll get better. Maybe I won't. But I hate the fact that that guy over there gets to do nothing. That really pisses me off. And that there are millions and millions and millions of people who feel that way. And I think the song uh, touches them, which leads me to this Thomas Sowell quote 
from his Twitter feed that leads me to another discussion. Uh, the, the fact that so many successful politicians are such shameless liars is not only a reflection on them, it's also a reflection on us. When the people want the impossible, only liars can satisfy them, and only in the short run. That is brilliant, as usual. We have incredibly... From Thomas Hole. Unrealistic expectations, which have been given to us by politicians. There's a... What do you call that when you got both sides working together? Symbiotic Feedback relationship or, or something? Yeah. yeah. Um, where uh, you promise us things we can't get, we, we that can't be delivered. We come up with expectations that can't be met, and it just keeps going back and forth and back and forth. Right, right. You you say I'll fulfill your delusions, and you say I will vote for your delusional ideas. Perfect. And, and then when they don't happen, somebody else promises even more, and you vote for that, which also can't be fulfilled. You can't roll your eyes far enough back in your head. (laughs) Mike Lyons to talk about the death of Prigozhin in Hour 3, among other things we're going to do today. Armstrong and Getty. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Today, the Russian president initially offering what he called his sincerest condolences to the families of all 10 victims on board the plane. But then calling Prigozhin someone with a complex destiny, making a veiled reference to that mutinous march on Moscow, saying the Wagner boss made, quote, serious mistakes in life. I don't know if you saw the video of it, but I was watching that. I was actually thinking of the George W. Bush that I looked in his soul and saw a good man. And then the Ugh. former CIA director, Gates, saying, I looked in his soul and I saw KGB. 
I looked in his eyes and saw KGB. Putin being able to look a crowd in the eye and say, I offer my sincerest condolences when obviously he knows he ordered the assassination of the dude. Everybody mm-hmm. in the crowd knows he ordered the, assass- the assassination of the dude. I mean, the, 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 the level of suspension of the truth that goes on in totalitarianism is just its amazing. Partly because, as we've discussed in the past, it serves the totalitarian. If Putin says, shame he died, isn't it? And everybody says, oh, my God, he's, he's like practically admitting to it. That's the point. I am so powerful, I'm not going to bother to cover my tracks. What are you going to do about it, huh? And you reply, nothing, sir. Well, and there, and you're so immersed in it. It's the only you know culture lifestyle you've known in many cases, whether you're some Middle Eastern dictatorship or North Korea or Russia or wherever. That just yeah, that's what has always been and will always be. We all live lies all day long. We all pretend things that aren't at all true, and we all know it, but we just go along with it because that's what human beings are. I mean, they're like, I, I, it's hard for me to wrap my hand around. It's like the whole fish don't know they're wet thing. Looking at it from the United States, it's so shocking. But if that's the only thing you've ever known, is we all walk around pretending all the time. What a profound point. Well said. Absolutely true. Wouldn't that be weird? (laughs) Well, it's not weird for them, because like I said, fish don't know they're wet. But it would be weird for an American to to get used to the idea. So we're all just going to pretend all day long, every day. Okay. Yeah. I offer my sincerest condolences that's a certain sort of human being that can do that so that idea of that's how dictators maintain fear and power by uh, the great example is you know the the various dictators north korea saying i made 18 consecutive holes in one and then just look at a crowd who's going to say i didn't and nobody says anything that's the point so that's you know that's pretty well known and 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 all but the one variation on that theme that uh, has been made clear in this deal that i find so interesting is uh, several commentators i didn't come up with this idea myself but they pointed out that the kremlin puts out conflicting stories they report that it appeared to be a missile and it couldn't have been a missile it was a bomb and it looks like mechanical failure because that reinforces the, and we talked about this in terms of when the Russians were trying to mess with the elections and pitting both sides against each other and spreading disinformation. The point is that you don't believe anything anymore. You, you cease seeking what is true. Mm. You give up. And what's scary about is that is we're screaming that direction ourselves. Here's the latest news reporting on how the plane did come down with Prigozhin supposedly on it. The plane carrying Evgeny Prigozhin, the man who embarrassed Vladimir Putin by attempting a coup against Russia's defense chiefs, dropped like a stone, twisting as it fell, missing a wing. Our initial assessment is that it's likely uh, Prigozhin was killed. The press reporting uh, stating that there was some type of surface-to-air missile that took down the plane. That We assess that information to be inaccurate. Which suggests a mid-air explosion, perhaps the result of a bomb. I don't know if we would say out loud if we thought Prigozhin wasn't on the plane or might not be on the plane. I'm not sure if we would mm-hmm. say that out loud. I, I'm sure they would try to figure out what's to our benefit. I feel like a bomb on the plane bringing it down makes it more 
plausible that he wasn't on the plane than a surface-to-air missile, because then Prigozhin might have, he could have, he could have, on his own, with a little help, blown up a plane he was supposed to be on to disappear. I guess I would find it a little surprising that he would blow up six of his deputies as well, because he, he valued what he'd built. Um, but maybe he thought, well, if I can't have it, nobody can have it. You're all going to die to help cover up the fact that I'm not dead. I'm hiding with a bunch of gold bars. Yeah, but the like a surface-to-air missile shooting it down made it harder to believe the idea of he faked it because he'd have to be working with the Russians. And I mean, yeah, that, right. that gets super complex. Right. I, I find it interesting, our, our uh, loyal listener and, and uh, smart guy Kevin, the missile defense expert, uh, sent a bunch of pictures with things circled and pointed out and signs that it was indeed an anti-aircraft missile. But who knows? People are wrong uh, sometimes. Or our government is trying to mislead us for some uh, reason or another. Which is fine if it's helpful in the war. It doesn't bother me. Um, uh, and this wrinkle from yesterday. Wagner fighters were very loyal to Yevgeny Prigozhin. Tonight, the Ukrainian military appealing to those fighters who have not committed war crimes to join Ukraine and to finish their march on Moscow. Think there's any chance of that happening? Is that going to be like a self-reported thing? Oh, yeah, I shot lots of Ukrainian soldiers, but I didn't like execute any prisoners or rape anybody. Okay, come on over. Here's your uniform. Any chance of the Wagner group marching on Moscow side-by-side side with Ukrainian soldiers or with their helper? Uh, that's an interesting prospect. I can see a, a certain number of them absolutely saying, okay, if you pay me, I'll, I'll fight for you. That's what I do. I'm a mercenary. And that's what they were. No. You know what? We'll ask Mike Lyons this very question in about a half an hour, hour three, and he has uh, been tweeting about it and on CBS and CNN and all over the place talking about it. It's an interesting story. That stuff about Russia in general uh, or, or that sort of culture is just so interesting to me. And that is way more the norm throughout world history than what we've got. I'm on a kick mm-hmm. with that because I was listening to a podcast yesterday with historians discussing this. We're the outlier weird idea, Western civilization right now in any of the democracies. We're not the, this is the way it all, you know, mostly is. This This isn't the gravity. And they're the outliers with the totalitarianism and the, everybody mm-hmm. believes the lies. We're right. the weirdos. Right, that extends to quote-unquote corruption, too. There's a big problem in Afghanistan. It's a big problem in a lot of our foreign relations is that we consider any payment to a government bureaucrat to get something done corruption. Whereas in uh, Afghanistan, they call it bakshish. It's it's essentially a tip. You walk into the zoning office. Do they have zoning offices? How do you zone rocks? Anyway, you walk into a zoning office. You lay a little love on the dude. He says, yeah, okay, you're the front of the line. I'll get you your paperwork by tomorrow. That's how it works. It's not considered corruption. It's considered life. I offer my sincerest condolences to a very talented man. And everybody just nods their head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's sad. I'm sad. We're all sad, right? I'm sad. Yes. Okay. Great. Wow. More on the way. Lots of good stuff. Stay with us. Armstrong and Getty. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on... 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Everyone's waiting to see it. Some big soccer match the other day that was a, a tournament was being held to promote peace. There was a big fight on the field and they had to cancel it, which is hilarious. Mm. Um, and then this uh, from Politico today, Spain football chief. They mean soccer, right? Yes. Spain soccer chief to resign after kissing World Cup winner on the lips. Oh, yeah. I heard about that at the time. Hmm. All right. Whatever. You know, Euros, they're, they're touchy-feely. They got their strange Euro ways. Yeah, exactly. You have to uh, account for that. Yeah, good point. So, <laughs> reassessing the Civil War. Um, uh, it's funny. Some people need their villains to be entirely villainous and their heroes to be entirely heroic. If they hear that, uh, you know, Hitler revolutionized highway systems... They think, oh, my God, you are pro-Holocaust, which is just idiotic. And if they hear that, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was a, a, a sinful man in a lot of ways, oh, my God, you're against his civil rights struggle. And I don't, I don't need that sort of black and whiteism in my world. Um, in fact, I, I find, you know, it's much more interesting when things are more complicated. I don't know. Maybe I'm a weirdo. Well, the, well, better, more current, weirdo. the better, more current example is if you think Trump's the Abrams Accords from the Trump administration were a great strep, step forward for the world in Middle East peace. Doesn't mean you're on board with January 6th. Yeah, that's a great example. Sure. Great policies, great judges, poor personal behavior. Is that too complicated from you for you? OK, I get it. Uh, but. A couple of things have come to my attention lately. Uh, this from the Wall Street Journal. Jim Webb wrote this. Do you know? Do you remember Jim Webb? He was a, a Marine. He was the Secretary of the Navy, and he was a United States Senator. And he was talking he about. He ran for president for a cup of coffee, didn't he? He did. He did indeed. Yeah, an honorable man. He didn't, you know, do terribly well. But he's talking about the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act, which. Uh, had incredibly broad mandates to get rid of anything that was at all affectionate toward anything from the Confederate side of the Civil War. Uh, it was in the wake of uh, that cop kneeling on George Floyd's neck and everybody freaked out. 
Um, and, and Floyd died, obviously. I don't mean to be disrespectful of his death, but everybody did freak out. Well, we permitted rioting for months in the country. But he's talking about this uh, Confederate veteran um, memorial that's in Arlington at the National Cemetery. And he mentions that it was uh, it was erected uh, a number of years after the end of the Civil War during the Spanish-American War when Southern boys were enlisting in the Union Ar- in the in the Federal Army wearing the blue and the country had a real coming together moment. And McKinley thought, you know, this this would be was it McKinley? It doesn't matter. Uh, the president at the time, yeah, McKinley thought, hey, this would be a good thing. Let's heal the country. Let's keep the healing going and recognize that you're mourning your dead just as we are. And, and they thought they were doing the right thing. So maybe you like that, maybe you don't. The plaque on it, written by a Confederate veteran who later became a Christian minister, says, Not for fame or reward, not for place or for rank, not lured by ambition or goaded by necessity, but in simple obedience to duty as they understood it, these men suffered all, sacrificed all, dared all, and died. And Jim Webb, who led... Uh, groups from Vietnam that were trying to figure out how to reconcile after their giant war, he showed them that monument and said, look, we've come together again. We realized you suffered. We suffered. Let's heal the wounds and get on with being a country. Okay. So that's interesting and arguable. Um, oh, and he later points out in the article, I knew there was one more thing, that um, f- only 5% of whites in the South own slaves. And less than 25% of whites benefited economically from slavery. A hell of a lot of white people suffered from slavery because it undermined wages in the labor market. And he asks, an estimated 258,000 Confederate soldiers died in the war. About a third of all of those who fought for the South. Very few of them owned slaves. So why did they fight? Interesting question. It's a complicated answer. I know Shelby Foote's answer, the great historian who was quoted through the Civil War documentary by Ken Burns throughout, uh, he quotes some uh, Southerner who was asked, a rebel soldier was asked by a Northerner, why are you guys fighting so hard? And his answer was, because you're down here. Okay, so that's absolutely the attitude of some. Right. Um, And and I'm not driving toward us. You're in my town fighting us. We'll, yeah. we'll rile a lot of people up. You burnt down my barn is why. Right. So, and again, I'm not trying to lead you to a particular conclusion, just that it's more interesting and complicated than it seems. Then I came across this. This is a note from history. It was in August of 1960 that a gentleman wrote a letter to Dwight D. Eisenhower when he was the president and said, why do you have a picture of Robert E. Lee in your office? And the president, who saved the world... You know, at the head of the Allied troops in World War II, obviously, wrote to Leon Scott. Dear Mr. Scott, respecting your inquiry, calling attention to my often expressed admiration for General Robert E. Lee, I would say first that we need to understand that at the time of the war between the states, the issue of secession had remained unresolved for more than 70 years. Men of probity, character, public standing, and unquestioned loyalty, both North and South, had disagreed over this issue as a matter of principle from the day our Constitution was adopted. That's fancy language to say nobody knew for sure whether a state could leave the Union. It was never addressed. Anyway, 
General Robert E. Lee was, in my estimation, one of the supremely gifted men produced by our nation. He believed unswervingly in the constitutional validity of his cause, which, until 1865, was still an arguable question in America. He was a poised and inspiring leader, true to the high trust reposed in him by millions of his fellow citizens. He was thoughtful yet demanding of his officers and men, forbearing with captured enemies, but ingenious, unrelenting, and personally courageous in battle, and never disheartened by a reverse or obstacle. Through all of his many trials, he remained selfless almost to a fault and unfailing in his faith in God. Taken altogether, he was noble as a leader and as a man and and unsullied as read the pages of our history. From deep conviction, I simply say this. A nation of men of Lee's caliber would be unconquerable in spirit and soul. Indeed, to the degree that present-day American youth will strive to emulate his rare qualities, including his devotion to this land, as revealed in his painstaking efforts to help heal the nation's wounds once the bitter struggle was over, we, in our time of danger and a divided world, will be strengthened and our love of freedom sustained. Such are the reasons that I proudly display the picture of this great American on my office wall. I have friends who are uh, uh, brilliant and patriotic, who would say hogwash, he committed treason. But I found those two points of view really interesting. Mm-hmm. Are there any Lee memorials? Oh, yeah. Still existing? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I there, there are. Were. I knew there were, but... they Did they take down the giant one in Richmond? Yeah. Yeah. Oh... Uh. Yeah, and and all of that is true, and I believe 100% Dwight Eisenhower's sentiments were sincerely expressed in that letter. On the other hand, there's a hell of a lot of people who, uh, you know, uh, revere Lee and the Confederacy and whatever for all the wrong reasons. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, exactly. Including racism, of course. Um, you got to admit, the argument that up until fairly recently in Richmond... The capital of the Confederacy, you had a giant statue to the guy who led the effort to tear apart the country. It's mm-hmm. odd. <laughs> the, the other countries don't do that. I mean, you know, there's oh, yeah. lots of things we do that the other countries don't do, and it's a good thing. Is that one of them? Like, do we have a way to heal or come together or get past our... I don't know. It's a little like... Um, like if you had a marriage that broke up over infidelity, but you got back together and you decided to have a picture of the guy your wife slept with in the bedroom to remind you of... He was you- so special. <laughs> he was a special part of our relationship. Yes, we, we did. Uh, over time, we became stronger as a marriage because you slept with that guy whose picture right. is next to my nightstand. <laughs> wow. But at this uh, at the same time, that is absolutely perfect and hilarious. Um for the South to say in the 1860s, look, obviously we're at loggerheads over this slavery thing. It's unsolvable. It's been a wonderful, wonderful party as a country, but we need to leave now. We wish you nothing but wealth and prosperity and, and good times ahead, but we're forming our own country now. Thanks very much. And the North replied, no, you're at war now. We're going to bomb you and, and, and fight you and kill your guys if you try to leave the country. That was not a settled question until, really, the Civil War settled it. And again, I'm not trying to argue that they were right or they should have been permitted to secede, but it's not nearly as cut and dried as it's presented generally. Um. 
Also, I was thinking a little bit like the way Nikki Haley was talking about abortion in a debate the other night, saying, look, I would like it to be this way, too, but we it just it won't fly politically. We can't do it. A lot of what happened, at least in the immediate aftermath after the Civil War, was how are we going to hold these two things together after 600,000 dead? I mean, it's a miracle that it it didn't it didn't end up like you know Ukraine and Russia have been fighting since 2014 it's right. a, it's a miracle it didn't end up like that so there are a lot of concessions made that in retro you know by present standards seem horrible you had to do to get people to come together especially in an era without electronic communication and if you heard there was a problem in in Mississippi you had to get on a horse and go down there and see what was up needed needed bullet trains that's what they needed speaking of Ukraine um, and all kinds of different stuff. We're going to talk to Mike Lyons to kick off Hour 3. If you missed that hour, get the podcast. Subscribe to Armstrong and Getty On Demand. Armstrong and Getty. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.